Lumos. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Harry Podcast, the show where we analyze and discuss each chapter of the Harry Potter series from a literary perspective. I'm David. And I'm Madeline, and today's episode is called Harry Podcast and the Sorting Hat. So welcome back to all of our listeners. Um, Thanks to those of you who have listened and submitted comments. Um, For a reminder, our email address for comments, questions, and anything you'd like to ask us is harrypodcast7 at gmail.com. And we'd really love feedback, especially this week, because we are trying out a new format for the podcast, and we'd really love to hear what you all think of how it goes. So although we're switching things up a bit with the format, we'd still like to do a quick synopsis to make sure our listeners are all on the same page. So at the beginning of this chapter, Harry and the first years are all really nervous about getting sorted into their houses. Um, The whole process is run by Professor McGonagall, who we meet. The Great Hall looks beautiful. Harry is sorted into Gryffindor after the whole sorting takes place, despite the hat debating the other houses, such as Slytherin, and so Harry is relieved that he's not in Slytherin particularly. Ron, Hermione, and Neville, who we've met previously, are also in Gryffindor. Dumbledore gives a very weird speech. Harry sees Quirrell, (laughs) who he has met before in Mm -hmm. Diagon Alley, and he sees Professor Snape for the first time, which makes his scar hurt. Right. Um, they see and meet the ghosts, specifically Nearly Headless Nick, and eat lots of amazing food. Then they go to bed where Harry has a strange, creepy dream that we will talk about later. All right, thank you, Madeline, for that great synopsis of the chapter as a whole. Um, starting out here, we would like to just give a quick overview of all the houses and the sorting process, and then we're going to go into a rather long discussion about the merits and demerits of sorting as a concept and specifically the way that it's dealt with in this series. Um, So real briefly, um, Harry and the reader gets an overview of each of the four houses with the Sorting Hats song in this chapter. So first we have Gryffindor, which is described as being a house for brave, daring, and chivalrous people. Um, Then we have Hufflepuff, which is described as just, loyal, patient, hardworking people. Ravenclaw, described as wise, witty, learned, ready-minded people. And finally, Slytherin, which is described as cunning, ambitious, and people who are basically willing to do whatever it takes to get where they want to be. So um, just right off the bat, going back to the history of how these four houses were founded, because I think it'll give us some context later on um, why they are the way they are. We get some context in Chamber of Secrets and then again in Goblet of Fire, on the four founders of Hogwarts, Godric Gryffindor, uh, Helga Hufflepuff, Rowena Ravenclaw, and Salazar Slytherin. And each of them named a house after themselves, which was based on whatever they thought was their strongest character trait. Uh, So for Gryffindor, it was bravery, Hufflepuff, loyalty, Ravenclaw, cleverness, and Slytherin, ambition. Uh, And then they designed the sorting hat, um, which was Godric Gryffindor's hat, Uh, to be able to decide who should be in which house after they were gone. So first, let's talk about why they felt the need to separate people into four categories based on personality trait. So yeah, I think it's natural for the four founders to have wanted to each create a house based on their own personality traits, because we all want to create things sort of made in our image. And they liked the idea of people going on for generations and generations, um, being sort of divided, following, in their, put- right, footsteps following in their footsteps and being divided into these, um, 
these houses based on these traits. Um, there's also the idea of the house cup and house points, um, which right. is introduced in this chapter. So um, the house cup is something that um, one house wins at the end of each term, at the end of each year, based on good behavior, bad behavior, um, how you do in school, Quidditch, all that stuff. So mm-hmm. it all plays into it, and it's just kind of a usually a good, healthy competition, um, which I think the founders would have also enjoyed thinking about future students doing that. So those are some cool things about dividing them into houses. But what uh, what do you think are some reasons that it may not be such a good idea? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's definitely a lot that um, makes me think that the four-house system isn't a good one. Um, but just to start off, I think, I think the idea of it was good Mm -hmm. originally. I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have, um, people grow up with people that are sort of like them, you know what I mean? But I think the way that the house system works nowadays and probably has for a thousand years is, is a little too simple. Um, it draws lines that just shouldn't really be there. Um, and it overly divides people and right off the bat, I mean, those, those four sort of groups that we talked about of the four houses, not only are they not mutually exclusive, meaning that you can you can be one and the other very easily, um, but they're also not like full all inclusive. They don't represent the full spectrum of yeah. So you can you can totally have like major characteristics that exist outside of this four house system, and then where do you go? Right. I mean, we've already heard that like Hufflepuff just accepts basically whoever. Um, but does that mean that like everybody who isn't brave or wise or cunning, but is, for example, like really empathetic or, you know, really responsible or like really caring, does that mean they get put in Hufflepuff too, even though, you know, maybe they don't really belong there? Yeah, it's kind of unclear. I could definitely see a lot of people not necessarily fitting into one of these houses and then what happens to them. Um, and even if, even if everyone does fit neatly in, um, it's very divided. I mean, they're in these houses. They sleep in the same room only with people in their house. They have class together. They only have classes together. They're on the same Quidditch teams together. They eat at the same house table. Same table. So really, they're completely segregated into these four houses. And there's no... I mean, you have to work really hard to make friends, let alone even talk to people Mm -hmm. of these other houses and people do it and it's not like they never interact but it's usually in a competition way like related to quidditch or the house cup so um it's just pretty interesting and that's not really a great way as we know to make friends and learn and grow especially as a young kid you want to meet people different from you and the best friends are usually people that have different characteristics from each other yeah i agree i mean i think again the idea of it was good so so people are tribalistic by nature we're getting into some psychology here, but people like to have a tribe of people like them. I mean, it, it makes it very easy to make friendships among that tribe. It makes it very easy to feel like you have an in-group and there are out-groups. And that sort of behavior is like you see it all over the world. But I think what's bad about this particularly is that, again, you're not making friends with a lot of different people, people with different viewpoints, different backgrounds. It's really just like if I was only friends with people that thought and acted like me, so anytime I have an idea, it's not going to get challenged by that group or it's not going to get, you know, sort of debated among those people. It's just going to be accepted and reinforced. And so when I have a bad idea, it's just going to get accepted and reinforced and that will just perpetuate a cycle of, you know, bad ideas and failure to grow as a person. Right. But not only that, it, 
that's, you know, that's kind of a heavy consequence that definitely happens. But I think, especially with kids, it's more just that you're learning who you want to be and you're forming your groups of friends and you may get stuck in like a comfort zone, sort of like what you were saying. But Mm -hmm. even with like the activities that you choose to do or how well you do in school, you know, I, I feel like Ravenclaws, you know, they are expected to do well, so they do well. But maybe people in Hufflepuff are like, don't feel that pressure and then they don't feel like their teachers expect as much of them and or it could go the other way like what if you're a ravenclaw and you find that you're just really struggling with some subject and it's like i mean yeah you could turn to your very clever friends for help but aren't you going to feel a little bit ostracized by the fact that you aren't maybe as clever as everybody else aren't you going to feel a little bit left out of that thing or you know let's do a case study of how people can get their behaviors reinforced by the house let's look at severus snape Mm-hmm. Growing up, he uh, was infatuated, we can say, with uh, a girl his age, Lily Evans, who is very kind and caring and fun to be around. She gets sorted into Gryffindor. He gets sorted into Slytherin. They were pretty similar growing up. They maybe had some differences, but they were pretty similar. So they grow up. As the years go by, they make friends within their own house in groups. Uh, they themselves are still friends with each other, but they become each other's only extra house friend. Um, so Snape is friends with a bunch of Slytherins, Lily's friends with a bunch of Gryffindors, and they're friends with each other, but that's it. So aside from each other, they don't have anybody to challenge the new perceptions of the world that they're sort of growing up in as people. Um, where Snape's growing up with a bunch of people who are sort of thuggish and are power-seeking, Lily's growing up with a bunch of people who are sort of brash and boorish, but who basically have good values. Um, and, and Lily's group of friends ends up bullying Snape. Um, sure, yeah. Which, I mean, they're not they're not perfect, right? No, but they don't not they don't perfect. go over to Voldemort, whereas all of Snape's friends end up becoming Death Eaters. Right, exactly. So there are those there are those two extremes, and right. um, it's really hard for them to remain friends, and they end up they end not. up they end up not remaining friends because of basically Snape's friends and their their behavior. Mm-hmm. Lily basically says, "I can't be friends with you because your friends are like." crazy murderers yeah uh and they all just want to join up with voldemort as soon as they graduate um and snape ends up being part of that group and later on in his life you know after he's made all the mistakes that he makes and repents and goes back to dumbledore and becomes a very complicated figure dumbledore even says to him you know because snape showed a lot of bravery throughout the rest of his life after that point dumbledore even says to him you know sometimes i think we sort too soon because Snape was showing so many traits of Gryffindors. But I think that statement by Dumbledore is really strange in a lot of ways, because he's basically saying, oh, you didn't belong in Slytherin, you belonged in Gryffindor. We should have brought you up to be a good guy instead of being brought in, bringing you up to be one no, of the bad guys. No, but I think it actually makes a lot of sense for this whole discussion about sorting. Sometimes we sort too soon. It's like, in general, in life, we often pigeonhole children and teenagers especially into what they're going to be and it's maybe we don't sort people in the same way but i think especially in hogwarts they're saying this is you and if it's not you um you better just suck it up and do it anyway or you're kind of gonna fail um or be really lost it's that like peer pressure thing totally where Mm -hmm. it's like if you're in slytherin you better like have the slytherin traits otherwise we're gonna ostracize you if you're a gryffindor you better buck up and be brave or we're gonna ostracize you right you know, if you're a Hufflepuff, you better, you know, work hard and be loyal. Yeah. Uh, and it's all these things that like, yeah, you can say that they're like good traits, I guess. But 
it doesn't really help people grow naturally. It basically just forces you again into into that pigeonhole kind of thing. Um, and I think it, I think it's really harmful. I mean, I, going back to what Dumbledore said to Snape, I think my point there was that Dumbledore is saying we sorted you too soon. You were growing as a person, and the fact that we put you in Slytherin was detrimental to that. But I think that's not true. I mean, I think it I think it is true that he sorting him into Slytherin was bad for him. But I think you shouldn't sort him at all. Yeah. You know, if you had just let Snape grow up in an environment full of different kinds of people, maybe he wouldn't have gravitated towards the Death Eaters. Maybe he would have made more friends with people like Lily. Yeah, so it would be really interesting to imagine. Maybe he would have made more friends with Ravenclaws. He's a very clever person. It would be really interesting to imagine what Hogwarts would be like in general without, without any sorting. And if people were just in mixed classes and could just be friends with who they wanted to be friends with. Yeah, and I mean, you, you do see the occasional cross-house friendship, but especially when we're reading the books from Harry's perspective, it seems like our cast of characters are almost exclusively Gryffindors and their quote-unquote opponents, the Slytherins. Mm-hmm. Um, we really, I mean, the, the Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws are, are subjugated to a very minor role in the books. Mm-hmm. And it's just too bad because I'm sure there are a ton of really interesting people in those houses that we just don't, and Harry doesn't get to interact with much uh, in this series because, again, they don't have classes together, they don't eat at the same table, they don't have the same common room, um, and it really isn't until Harry starts the DA in the fifth year that he even meets any of these people. Right. And it's just too bad. I think they're. I think the house system basically makes people into these tribes that just then don't get to interact with each other as much as they should. And it, I think maybe my main point is it really inhibits a lot of personal growth. It, it pigeonholes people into being one thing. Right. And another question that we had related to this was um, the amount of people in Hogwarts in general and how many students are sorted into each house. And we don't have a specific answer for how many people are in each house. Um, but I think that's interesting as well because not only are we sorting people, but are we trying to sort an equal amount of people into mm. each house or is it random and then is one house very skewed? Um, you know, are there only a few Slytherins because there's only a few people that fit those traits one year? Um, right. I mean, you'd imagine there's probably not that many pure blood wizards. Mm-hmm. So there probably aren't that many people that are even eligible for Slytherin house. But, but it's just interesting to think about as well, like... Not only are you only with your house, but there may be different, you know, you may have the biggest house or the smallest house, and um, that may vary, and I don't know. That's just another interesting element as well to yeah. think about with sorting. Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's really strange, but I think um, if I were going to be in Hogwarts, I think that I would get put into Ravenclaw House, but I think that I would want to be a Hufflepuff because... It just seems like Hufflepuff House is, like, the best. I mean, people there just seem like really good friends. And, yeah. and you know, they're loyal. I love loyalty as a trait. Um, and, you know, they're really justice-oriented. I just think there's a really there's a ton of good about Hufflepuff House, but I'm afraid that I would not be sorted into it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That I would get Me pigeonholed too. as just, like, a, a book-smart person and, and get placed in Ravenclaw. Yeah, I think about that too. I mean, there is the Pottermore sorting quiz and there's much debate about um, what goes on um, in terms of those different quizzes and what houses people would, mm-hmm. would be in. Um, but I I don't know. I think it would be best to 
really just have no house and let people figure out who they are. We're definitely agreed on that. Um, As far as the, like, how many students are there thing, um, I just was thinking about it. There are eight Gryffindors in Harry's year. Um, Harry, Ron, Hermione, Dean Thomas, Seamus Finnegan, Neville Longbottom, Parvati, and Lavender. Um, And so we could extrapolate that to say that there's roughly 35 uh, people in his grade, and then maybe there's around... hmm, 250 people in the school as students. Yeah, and I mean, not that, very many. that sounds about right. But again, we don't know exactly if there's even an even split um, yeah, between I mean, the houses. Then your class sizes are like 10 to 15 people. Yeah. Even if you're sharing with another house. So it's a pretty small class. So now we'll move on to talking specifically about Harry's sorting, the sorting of this year. Um, so everyone's really nervous all the first years. They believe there might be some sort of test needing to use spells for the sorting process. Hermione's talking about all the spells she knows that she might be able to use. So everyone's really stressed, especially Harry. And he compares it to picking teams and gym, which he remembers from school. (laughs) Um, It reminds me of what I know about Russian Greek life, sort of, um, even though it's not exactly the same. And I've never done it myself. But just the idea of worrying that you won't be chosen at all um, and who what group you'll fit into and sort of all those problems that we talked about before about being sorted. And also during this time, Harry's nervous because he's already famous, um, so he's getting a lot of whispers and attention around him from the other first years who are noticing him um, kind of for the first time off the train. Right. Harry, there's this really great quote where Harry's feeling nervous, and he thinks, if only the hat had mentioned a house for people who felt a bit queasy, that would be the one for him. Right, referring to the fact that he feels like he doesn't fit in with any of the houses. Yeah, and so that's the only thing, that's the main feeling he has at the moment. So he's like, this is this is where I'll fit in. When the sorting actually begins, um, we see that the hat varies the amount of time that it takes with um, each person. So sometimes it's really fast and sometimes it takes a long time like it does with Harry. Um, mm-hmm. And we can imagine that this would sometimes get boring, especially for the older classes. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's an interesting note um, from a writing perspective that um, this is one of the only sortings that Harry, and by extension the reader, actually witnesses. Um, I believe the other ones are in his fourth year in Mm -hmm. Goblet of Fire and in fifth year in Order of the Phoenix. He misses years two and three, and he misses his sixth year, and obviously he doesn't go back to school for his seventh year. Um, So I think the main reason for this, again, as you said, is that it's it's kind of boring to read about the sorting every year. She probably also didn't want to have to write a new um, sorting hat song <laughs> yeah. every book because I think those can be challenging. Yeah. Um, and But again, I think mostly it's just that in essence, you're reading a list of names and then saying which house they go into. And there's only so many times you can do that without it just getting really, really old for the and reader. And we really only care about people in his house um in his grade for yeah. most of the time yeah so anytime jk rowling could write something to get him out of it she did yeah I, I don't blame her too much for that so when harry is actually sitting on the chair with the hat on his head the hat tells harry basically that he could be in any house um do you want to read what the hat says sure yes um it says difficult very difficult plenty of courage i see not a bad mind either there's talent oh my goodness yes and a nice thirst to prove yourself. Now, that's interesting. So where shall I put you? And I really like this quote in particular because it actually demonstrates courage, not a bad mind, talent, and a thirst to prove yourself. Those four traits 
um, with a little bit of tweaking are basically the four Mm -hmm. house traits. Um, And so the hat's basically saying, I could put you in any house. Mm -hmm. I just have to sort of figure out which one is the most important to you. And then that's the one where you're going to end up. Um, I think this is a really crucial point because Harry's ability to have chosen his own house, which he does, he basically tells the hat, don't put me in Slytherin. And the house says, okay, I won't. That comes up uh, a fair amount later on in his life where where it's reiterated to him that the choice that he made to not be in Slytherin um, was a critical one. But if we actually look at what the hat was going through when it was trying to do this sort of calculation to figure out where to put Harry, I think it sees all these traits and it goes, okay, so you could go to any house. So let's figure out which ones are the most prominent. Okay, um, well, clearly I'm seeing a lot of Voldemort's influence here um, because there's that little piece of soul Mm -hmm. that's attached to you. So that's pretty prominent. Um, But you've also got all this courage that I can see in you too. And so Harry says, okay, just don't put me in Slytherin. I've heard so many bad things about it. Please just put me in any other house. I don't care. And the hat's like, okay, fine. Gryffindor. Yeah, and so not only does Harry know that Voldemort was in Slytherin, um, he has just met Malfoy, who has said how much he wants to be in Slytherin, and he knows he's going to be. And he's like, okay, if this would be my peer in Slytherin, I definitely know that's going to be a miserable time. Right, and the hat barely touched Malfoy's head before it decided on Slytherin Mm -hmm. for him. So clearly that's what Malfoy wanted, and it was his most prominent traits, very right off the bat. Um, But yeah, I mean, pretty much all Harry knows at this point going in is that Voldemort was in Slytherin, Malfoy is in Slytherin now, Um, Hagrid had told him that all bad wizards have come from Slytherin, which we know is not true, but it's an overly simplistic way of saying it produces a lot of baddies. Yeah. And all he knows basically is that he just really wants to distance himself from that however possible. And so he ends up in Gryffindor. But this is, as you said, a really critical moment that does come back, um, not to haunt him, just to remind him um, as time goes by that he could have made that other choice. And once it is revealed that he has his Horcrux in him, it's kind of almost um, Mm -hmm. amazing that he wasn't in Slytherin or he didn't end up going this way and he could have turned out to be a very different person. Um, And that's something we were talking about before, about the influence of your peers. So um, this was... An extremely critical moment yeah. for and, Harry. And Harry doesn't know, I think it's important to note, Harry doesn't know that thinking not Slytherin, not Slytherin is going to have any effect. He doesn't right. actually have any idea how the hat works. And so when he thinks that and the hat goes, hmm, not Slytherin, eh? Harry's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you can hear my thoughts. But but he doesn't, again, he doesn't know that that's going to affect the hat's decision. So he's, he's really just like, it's just pure 11-year-old hope that yeah. he's not going to end up there. And then the hat says, no, I'll take your, I'll take your opinion into account. Yeah. Um, and so Harry really made a choice here. Um, and everybody who sits under the sorting hat basically makes a choice. Most people make the choice to not uh, contest the hat's decision um, and, and just play passively. But that is a choice. You know, you are choosing not to say anything about it. In, I, want, I want to say your own defense, but it's really just on, to advocate for whatever mm-hmm. you feel you, you need to advocate for. So Harry could have said nothing, option one. Harry could have said, I want to be in X house. Or he could have said, I just don't want to be in Y house. Mm -hmm. And because he didn't really know how the rules worked, and I think part of the point is that they don't know how the rules work going in, all he said was really just what he was feeling, which is, I've associated all of this bad emotion with Slytherin house, and I don't want 
to myself be in it. Um, and the hat says, okay, sure. Yeah. So that's how Harry's sorting goes down, and it has a lot of impact in the rest of the book. So now that we've covered what I would consider sort of the main theme of the chapter, um, let's discuss some secondary characters and some other interesting things that we noticed um, when we were reading. So why don't you start out with a character? So the first character I thought of was Dumbledore. This is the first time Harry has actually seen Dumbledore, um, even though he knows who he is and has seen him on a wizard card. Right. (laughs) Um, So my first impression of Dumbledore is that he kind of seems like a weirdo um, in Mm -hmm. this chapter. His few words that he says are nitwit, blubber, oddment, and tweak, which are um, very famous um, He says, I'd like to say a few words, and then that's what he says, and then he sits back down. (laughs) So, And he's also very into the school song and kind of oblivious to the social cues about it sounding weird and everybody not wanting to do it, but he doesn't really care. Yeah, I think he's just kind of like, he's an old man, and he likes what he likes, and he doesn't care that other people don't like it. Um, but that's just not really my impression later on of Dumbledore. Um, you know, he, we obviously get to know him more and he becomes very serious. So we do see his seriousness and his strength during one line when he says that the third floor corridor on the right hand side is out of bounds to everyone who does not wish to die a very painful death. And everyone's like, is he serious? And he's serious. He's like a bit of a jokester too. I think like, like Harry and a few other people laugh. When he says that. Right. Because he had been saying sort of silly things up to that point as well. And and then that line seems just like very different in tone to everything else that he was saying. And Harry's like, what? Is he, is he, is he joking? Is he serious? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. But Percy doesn't even know why Dumbledore, you know, why Dumbledore is saying this. So he assumes that it must be very serious and they can't talk about it. Yeah. He even says like, I thought he would have at least told the prefects what's right. going on, but... Maybe Percy is just inflating his own self-importance here, too. So um, the next character that I thought of was Neville. Um, We hear sort of some more backstory. Everyone's talking about sort of how they learned they were wizards and how they, like, found out they were going to Hogwarts and Neville's backstory involved his family, basically. Um, He says he was raised by his grandmother, and he says no one thought he was going to be magic at all um and that they like tried to shake the magic out of him or like bully the magic out of him or scare it out of him a bunch of times um and that it eventually came to pass that uh he fell out of a window when his great uncle algae dropped him mm-hmm. uh and then he bounced down the driveway and into the road which is how they knew that he was uh, magic um which is pretty screwed up when you think about how <laughs> how he was raised but also um what I found interesting when I was rereading this this time is that his parents were incredibly powerful aurors. Right. Um, and in the first Wizarding War, they were um, tortured and driven insane by um, some Voldemort supporters after his fall. But they were incredibly popular and very powerful wizards. So, if, you know, especially Neville being a pureblood, I wonder why his family would have ever thought that he wasn't going to be a wizard. I mean, squibs are incredibly rare and his parents were like very well-to-do and powerful wizards so yeah all i can think is that he must have shown his very sort of clumsy nevelness at an early age um although we know that he himself becomes a very powerful wizard for many books he's just kind of fumbling around and um not very good at things so they probably just you know sort of again kind of pigeonholed him, him into being someone that was not very skilled Um, But again, I wonder how much of that comes not from his own innate ability or lack thereof, but from their treatment of him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, 
if if he's constantly being told that he's like clumsy and ineffective and not like very magical, I, I'm sure that that would have affected his behavior in a big way. Oh yeah, of course. The next character that Harry sees is Snape. Um, so Professor Snape is the potions teacher. Um, Harry's scar hurts when Snape looks straight at him. All we know about him so far is that he teaches potions, but everyone knows he wants the Defense Against the Dark Arts job, uh, which is what I believe Fred or George says to him. No, Percy says it. Percy says to him. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we know that about him, and he looks kind of creepy. Um, yeah, he's got a hook nose, sallow skin, and dark, greasy hair. Right. He's. I mean, he's described as like a Disney villain. Sort yeah. Of, which is great because, again, in this book, we're, we're misled to believe that Snape is the villain. Right. Um, I was trying to remember why exactly Harry, does Harry scar her when he looks at Snape? Um, you know, is it because he has this connection to Voldemort? Is it because Snape was a Death Eater? Um, and I think that you maybe had an answer for that. Right. So it actually is about our, our next and last character um, in this chapter, which is Quirrell. When Harry first met Quirrell, there's no mention of him wearing a turban of any sort. Mm-hmm. Um, and there surely would have been because it would have been strange to see him wearing one. But there is a mention of a turban now. So uh, in this in this scene, he's described as looking very peculiar in a large purple turban. So he must not have been wearing one when they first met um, because he is wearing one now and it's described now. Um, so that means that after Harry met him in Diagon Alley, um, between then and now, uh, Voldemort took up residence in the back of Quirrell's head. And that's why he wears the turban now. So that's the answer to the question, why does Harry's scar hurt? When he's looking at Snape. So Snape and Quirrell had been having a conversation. Um, and presumably Quirrell has his head pointed towards Snape. Which means that the back of his head is sort of pointed out towards the Great Hall. Um, and one can assume that Voldemort is sort of psychically looking out over the Great Hall. Scanning it. Looking for people. Um, and maybe he happens to see Harry. Or maybe his like you know psychic vision just sort of catches Harry in it. And then Harry's scar goes, ah! Mm. So it's that's super. It's really interesting because it's another type of mislead where it's like right. Snape is the villain, and so he looks at Snape and he's like, "Wow, he's he's creepy." And then you know, throughout the books, they're thinking that Snape is evil, and right, we get a very visceral it's kind of compounded by this. Yeah, we get a very visceral like misdirection here, where Harry's scar even hurts, like just looking at this guy for the first time. Mm-hmm. When their eyes meet, Harry's scar hurts, and that's immediately a sign to the reader that something is wrong with this character. Mm-hmm. Something is evil about him. And Harry's scar throughout the whole series is a barometer for, you know, evilness, and really it's relation to Voldemort, um, which is what it actually does. But here it's used in a very, very clever misdirection by the author to set up Snape to be a villain in this book, and really in a lot of other of the Harry Potter books too. We keep over and over thinking that Snape is going to be the villain, and he never is. But the the deceptions get larger and larger each book. Mm -hmm. So I think the last thing of major significance in this chapter is right at the end. uh, And it concerns Harry's dream that he has the night that he was sorted and the first feast at Hogwarts. Um, So do you have the quote from that dream? Yes. So this is basically the entirety of the dream. It starts, 
He was wearing Professor Quirrell's turban, which kept talking to him, telling him he must transfer to Slytherin at once because it was his destiny. Harry told the turban he didn't want to be in Slytherin. He tried to pull it off, but it tightened painfully, and there was Malfoy, laughing at him as he struggled with it. Then Malfoy turned into the hook-nosed teacher, Snape, whose laugh became high and cold. There was a burst of green light, and Harry woke, shaking and sweating. So when I read this quote of the dream, um, I didn't remember that it had happened at all, um, and I felt like this is basically the entire series foreshadowed in one dream. There's so many symbols and connections here. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, it's full of symbols. I mean, the turban, we could say, is like Voldemort mm-hmm. telling Harry that his destiny is with Slytherin and with Voldemort. You know, maybe Harry's subconscious thinks that, like, he may have played with fate in some way by saying to the hat, I don't want to be in Slytherin. And maybe this is his, you know, worry about that coming to the surface here. Also, the inclusion of Snape and Malfoy in this dream. Um, are, again, sort of misleads to who the true evil is, but mm-hmm. they also kind of represent um, people that are um, united against Harry and good in some senses. Um, yeah, I think such you could say that they're like, they're like bullies. You know? They're bullies, they're, yeah. They're in opposition to Harry. They laugh at his misfortune. They think that he's not as good as he wants to be. And also the idea of them being connected because of their killing of Dumbledore. Oh, Snape yeah. kills Dumbledore, but you know, Malfoy spoilers. is supposed to kill Dumbledore. <laughs> yeah, spoilers. Right, that's true. Um, I hadn't thought about that, that both of them were, were in on that plot. I love that Snape turns into Voldemort right at the end of the dream. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great mislead, again. I think I think it's supposed to reinforce the um, connection that the reader is supposed to draw between Snape and Voldemort, Mm -hmm. right? Because we already have Harry's scar hurting when he looked at Snape the first time. And now here Harry dreams that Snape turns into Voldemort. So it's a really great mislead by the author. And it actually sets up the end of this book quite well. Um, If you just replace Snape with Quirrell here, uh, that really is the end of this book. Mm -hmm. That Quirrell sort of, quote unquote, turns into Voldemort and has been sort of hiding Voldemort all along. Um, yeah, and the idea of this turban, which we talked about how Voldemort's in the turban, and that's why Harry's scar hurts. Um, but first-time readers reading this, this is just kind of a funny image that has been stuck in Harry's head, just yeah. something that sticks out, this purple turban. So even in this dream connected to all these things, we don't, on first read, think of it as being connected to this evil, but of course it is. Right. And I think there's there's something really interesting about the fact that Harry has this dream the first the first time that he is remotely close to Voldemort's soul mm-hmm. since he was a baby. You know, this is the first time in 10 years that he's been close to Voldemort. Um, and, he, and he has this dream that first night. I think it might actually be related to the fact that he, his scar is a horcrux of Voldemort's soul. I think maybe the, the horcrux here is like sending out psychic signals to harry's brain or or trying to connect back with its owner or something and that there's a there's some sort of psychic or emotional pain going on here which is causing this dream in some way Mm -hmm. i'm not sure but but it it seems coincidental maybe um maybe too coincidental for it to be just random worrying or oh yeah of course i also thought it was interesting on this read of the dream that there's kind of an omniscient narrator going on because the line after this um, description of the dream is 
basically saying that Harry didn't remember this dream when he wakes up. So the way I read that was almost that Harry didn't even register that this dream was happening. He was dreaming it, but it wasn't something that he was conscious of. And when he wakes up, he just... He didn't remember it. That's what he said. So it's not like some. this is something that gives him pause or causes him stress. And right. I think that He doesn't associate these things with each other later on. He doesn't remember it later and go, oh, I dreamed about that. Right. It's and I think gone. that's important because um, not that, you know, if he remembered it, he would make all these connections and know what was going on. But I think that it is just clear that th- there's all these underlying things happening, but Harry is completely unaware of them now and he sort of can't. He can't face any of it right now. Yeah. I think your your point about the omniscient narrator is interesting. I've always read Harry Potter as being a third-person limited perspective because we don't get other people's point of view or thoughts or anything. It's really just Harry, and there are occasional chapters now and then that have another perspective. But again, it tends to be limited to that person. Um, yeah, and I agree. I think that it is a third-person limited, but I think there are something moments where we've discussed them before in some earlier chapters mm-hmm. but i think even this one line um you know it's technically from harry's perspective but it's something that harry didn't remember so right. in general he can't uh, but if you think about this. it from sort of like a mindfulness perspective maybe you can have a dream and have it be real even though you don't remember it yeah you know well, so course. so the narrator is sort of like the observer mm-hmm. if we were doing a mindfulness exercise the the narrator would be the one observing the thoughts go mm-hmm. by in the dreams. Um, and so the narrator can record those because they have that power, but Harry doesn't. Mm-hmm. Harry doesn't remember them, but the narrator did. And mm-hmm. so the narrator told us about it. Right. So in that way, I think it is sort of a limited slash omniscient thing because it has more brain power than Harry does, um, but it doesn't have that like extra Harry perspective. It doesn't, it doesn't have Ron's thoughts. It doesn't have Hermione's thoughts, just Harry. Yeah, I think that'll be... I think it'll be interesting to see when this type of perspective comes up later in the series, because I bet that it does. Thank you all for listening to Harry Podcast and The Sorting Hat. We hope you've enjoyed our sorting out of this chapter, and stay tuned for next time when we explore Chapter 8, The Potions Master. I'm Madeline. And I'm David. And we'll see you next time on The Harry Podcast. Knox.